This is episode 161 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have Andrea Hayes back. Uh, She was on a few episodes ago, and she hinted at her love for neuroanatomy, so we had so many requests for her to come back on the show. But anyways, Andrea received her bachelor's and master's in speech pathology from Loyola University in Maryland. She completed an externship at the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, where she fell in love with being a medical SLP. She completed her CF at the Shock Trauma Center and received her C's in 2003. In 2005, she joined the team at the John, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore with initial years covering neuroservice, then medical oncology, then cardiothoracic surgery, rotations giving a really nice range of experience and exposure. She practiced there until 2012. During her time at Johns Hopkins, she also taught the graduate course Neurology for the Speech Language Pathologist at Loyola University. In 2013, Andrea decided to move to the Sunshine Coast and fell into an awesome seasonal PRN position at Blake Medical Center, where she is now the supervisor of the SLP department. Her focus of practice is currently CVA, trauma, and burns slash facial burns. Her favorite pre-COVID pastime was skating in a local roller derby league. Andrea received her board certification in swallowing and swallowing disorders in 2015 and her MHA degree in 2019. Hello, my friends. I hope everybody had a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. I know it probably looked nothing like it's looked in previous years, but um, still have so much to be grateful for. I'm so grateful for everybody that comes on this podcast, listens to this podcast, that supports this podcast. Um, As a gigantic thank you to all of you, we are putting on our second MetaSLP Summit of the year this week. So from November 30th through December 4th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, Uh, We will have 20 different speakers, so 20 different presentations um, over the five nights. It's completely free uh, in the MetaSLP Newbies Facebook group. Um, Additionally, if you would like to receive CEUs for all 20 presentations, which is 10 hours, so 1.0 ASHA CEUs, you can. Uh, You can pay a small fee of $34, which also gives you access to uh, the MetaSLP Collective for one month. So if you're interested in checking it out, head to metaslpcollective.com forward slash summit. And again, that's running from November 30th to December 4th from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern p.m. That's at night. I know some people were like, I can't take the whole week off from work. No, it's supposed to be at night. Um, and they are also recorded as well. So uh, check it out at metaslpcollective.com forward slash summit for five days, 10 hours, 20 presentations, and over 20 speakers. All right, hope to see you guys there. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. 
Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Teresa. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for joining me again. Absolutely. It was fun last time and I think it'll be fun again today. Yes, we had such a great conversation last time and it Andrea kind of hinted about her passion for neuroanatomy. And then after the episode, I had people saying, oh my gosh, let's have Andrea come back and talk more about it. So <laughs> here we are with the infamous follow-up episode with more neuro stuff, which I know nobody can get enough of. So take it away, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. So yes. the title of this talk or, or podcast is Neuroanatomy Review from One Neuron to Another. And uh, the goal today is really to fill the brains of your listeners with some fun and functional facts about the brain and some practical applications for medical speech pathologists. I also kind of wanted to hint at the fact that it's called the nervous system, which makes me laugh because people do feel really nervous and intimidated talking about it. But in all actuality, it's very connected in a logical way um, and we can make it fun to learn. Awesome. So what I did is I divided the course today into um, five different sections. So we're going to talk a little bit about embryology and neural development, neural protection of the brain, neuroanatomy, vascular supply to the brain, and finish it up with some cranial nerve fun and condensing that to just five of the nerves. Um, so we will continue. We'll start with the beginning where it all begins. So in early mitosis, there is the formation of the zygote, um, which is the fertilized egg that then develops into a cluster of cells called the blastocyst. And that's around, around day five to seven of development. From there, there's a more organized grouping of cells that's called the bilaminar germ disc, and then a trilaminar germ disc develops by week three. That trilaminar germ disc becomes the ectoderm, mesoderm, and endoderm. And basically the endoderm is the inner layer and that becomes the tracts of your gastric system, respiratory system, and other canals like the auditory canal, the endocrine, and the endocrine system. The outermost layer, which is the ectoderm, is what becomes our nervous system and also the epidermis of the body. And the mesoderm, which is the middle layer, becomes the blood supply, the lymphatic system, and also all of the smooth muscles of the heart and esophagus, to name a couple. So from that point, um, the process is called neurulation, and a flat neural plate is formed, which morphs into a crest, folds, and a groove into from, think way back to your neuroanatomy class, what was called the neural tube. So the inner cavity of the tube becomes the buoyant ventricular system and also the central canal of the, the spinal cord. So you have the fluid-filled systems of the inner cavity and the outer side will become all the uh, parts of the, the brain and the body. So when all goes well and the cells continue to propagate, um, there's something that forms called the primary vesicles. And they're basically these protuberances of the developing brain. The three major protuberances are called the prosencephalon, which is your forebrain, the mesencephalon, which is the midbrain, and the rhombencephalon, which is the hindbrain. And from there, they further divide as we continue to develop. To develop, um, The prosencephalon becomes the hemispheres of the brain and the thalamus. The mesencephalon is the midbrain, which is that tiny little piece that holds the cranial nerves for your vision. And the rhombencephalon will become the pons, the cerebellum, and the medulla, um, as well as the cerebellum, so the kind of the posterior parts of the brain. 
Now, I wanted to throw in a, a couple fun facts, and some of this comes from my own curiosity, um, being a practicing speech pathologist, of you know why things are the way they are. So I've always wondered why the recurrent laryngeal nerves have such a funky course um, and wrap around different areas of, of the heart. So what happens during this period where the structures of the brain are beginning to develop into bigger kind of protuberances or buds is there's these buds that form called the pharyngeal arches. And each arch, each developing arch contains a developing cranial nerve as a pair. So pharyngeal arch one, which is towards the top, contains the trigeminal nerve. The second one right below it is the facial nerve. The third one is the glossopharyngeal nerve. And then arches four and six contain the vagus. So the, the, it kind of continues to develop and the left recurrent laryngeal nerve gets trapped under the arch of the aorta, and the right recurrent laryngeal nerve gets trapped under the right subclavian artery. So that happens because as the vagus is growing, basically the vagus nerve is growing and moving with this, this developing arch. At the same time, the heart was developing in the lungs, the trachea, all the other structures are starting to take shape. And as the pathways um, develop, it gets pulled in different directions. So Kind of fascinating. Um, when I think about it, I, I think of it as another safety net that was in our creation. <laughs> um, because if you had both of those recurrent laryngeal nerves in one location and had damage there, you would have no movement of the vocal cords, right? You'd be, you wouldn't have a life. So it's probably just another way that we were developed to have the safety net um, in different locations for things. Okay, so as things continue throughout the neural development, we have um, neurons taking shape, literally. So neurons, just to review, you have the, the body of the neuron, the dendrites, which receive the information, and the axons, which send out the information um, and contain the neurotransmitters that synapse and um, basically go into the neuromuscular junction um, to create muscle movement. The term synapse is to clasp, and that's when things connect. And in this process of um, neuron development, you have the, the neurons of the, the bulk of the brain, which are actually the neuroglia, and they're the supportive cells. You guys may re remember the terms, or maybe you've had patients with different brain tumors, um, things like oligodendrocytes, Schwann cells, ependymal cells, astrocytes. Those are all actually glia cells, and they're more prolific in number than the actual neurons. And that's where you oftentimes see brain tumors called things like astrocytoma, ependymoma, schwannoma, oligodendroglioma. So um, those are all the glia cells. And, and again, they're more robust in number than the neurons. The neurons that make up the, the bulk of the organs are the pyramidal and Purkinje neurons. And they do have different shapes. Um, the pyramidal neurons are within the hemispheres and the Purkinje and the cerebellum. All right, so moving along, by the time of birth, so that's a little bit about embryology and, and the development. Um, by the time of birth, we have a fully developed central and peripheral nervous system. So the term central nervous system refers to the cerebrum and the spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system, the spinal nerves and the cranial nerves. So spinal nerves are higher in number. There's 31 pairs that actually exit the right and left sides of your spinal cord. And the cranial nerves have 12 pairs um, that are organized kind of hierarchically within the brain. So number one being at the very fore part of the brain, the optic nerve, um, moving to two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way down to the bottom of the medulla. 
Okay, so how did those two systems connect, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system? Um, and this is a, a good review of motor and sensory pathways. So we talked about the central nervous system being the bulk of the brain and the spinal cord and the peripheral nervous system being the actual spinal nerves and cranial nerves. Um, so we can divide up the way they connect into corticospinal pathways and corticobulbar pathways. So the motor system is really just a two-neuron system where the upper motor neuron begins in your frontal lobe, right in that precentral gyrus or motor strip, and it's going to send the signal down through the hemispheres into the brainstem, cross over at various levels, depending on the type of nerve, and then synapse with the lower motor neuron. The lower motor neuron is the spinal nerve or the cranial nerve. So it's really just a two-part system. You've got the message coming from above, crossing over, and synapsing with the spinal nerve or the cranial nerve. So for our purposes, the lower motor neuron is the actual cranial nerve within the brainstem. Okay, then moving over to sensory pathways, you have a three-neuron system. So the first neuron starts in the periphery of the body, ascends up to the brain, and synapses with the second neuron, which is in the brainstem, and then ascends into the thalamus, where the third neuron then sends the information to the sensory strip. So that's right in the parietal lobe right behind the central sulcus. It's called the post-central gyrus. So it's a three-neuron system for sensory, and of import is the thalamus, because that's the processing station. So once the information gets to the thalamus, it knows where to go to the right location on the post-central gyrus or the sensory strip. All right, so that's the basics of the pathways. You've got the, the motor pathway, two-neuron system, sensory pathway, three-neuron system. And now we'll talk a little bit about how the brain is protected. So obviously it needs a lot of protection, and we have that via the ventricles, the bones, and also the meninges. So the brain itself is very soft and mushy. Um, if you've ever done a dissection, you can see how delicate the brain tissue is. And in the air, it weighs about 1,400 grams, but the, the cerebrospinal fluid that fills the system of the ventricles keeps it suspended and gives buoyancy to the brain, so it's really only 50 grams within your skull. And basically, the, the purpose of that is to protect us from gravity's effects and, you know, literally bumps along the way as we're kind of traveling through life. Um, that buoyancy is what keeps the brain from continually hitting against the skull or going downwards. So the next level of protection we'll talk about is the bony protection. Um, so we've got the skull compri comprised of the cranial bones and facial bones, and of course the spinal column, which protects the spinal cord. Fun fact, uh, the Vikings back in the day used to take their conquered victims and use their skulls for drinking. So the, the um, toast that you often hear is skull, which means skull. Um, and they would just drink right out of there, which I think is kind of funny and interesting. However, because the skull has openings, which are called foramen, F-O-R-A-M-E-N, that wouldn't be a very pleasant way to drink, right? So there's holes in the skull. So they may have filled that vessel up with wine and it could have all poured out. Um, but these foramen are where all the nerves, arteries, and veins will enter and exit the brain. So... I wanted to talk a little bit to your listeners because we're going to talk about cranial nerve uh, trajectories a little bit later, is that these foramen are critical for us to know about. Um, it's not something we often learn about in school, um, but this is where the cranial nerves themselves are 
entering and exiting. Um, so when there's any damage to the skull, you may have a cranial nerve involvement um, because of that. So one of them is called the foramen ovale, O-V-A-L-E, and that's where the trigeminal comes out of. Then you have the stylomastoid foramen, which is where the facial nerve, number seven, comes out. You have the jugular foramen, which is where 9, 10, and 11 come out. So it's a little bit lower in the skull base. And the hypoglossal canal, also very low in the skull base, is where 12 comes out. And of course, the foramen magnum is where the spinal cord exits the skull. That's basically bony protection. The spinal column, we don't want to ignore the spinal column. I know we're focused mostly on the neuroanatomy, um, more of the cerebral hemispheres, um, but we will just touch upon the spinal column. And a reminder, um, C1, the very top level of the cervical vertebrae, is how our heads extend and flex. So um, we call it the yes axis, right? So your C1 is what allows us to say yes and move our head up and down. C2 right below is called the atlas, and that's for rotation and lateral movement of the head, so saying no. You remember the hyoid bone is right around C3 to 4, so any damage of C3 um, down to C5 is, is potentially going to cause some um, differences with swallowing. And another thing to just take note of, especially for your, your audience who does um, fluoroscopic imaging, is that there should only be, in front of the spinal column, about seven millimeters of soft tissue. So if you have a patient who has had any uh, trauma or cervical spine surgery, you want to really look closely at how much soft tissue you, you see there, because that alone can cause the dysphagia if there's edema um, or any increase in soft tissue. Another thing, kind of on a side note, you'll sometimes see with elderly patients is atrophy of that tissue, um, and really the tissue is just muscle. So when you see these patients who have kind of a larger hypopharynx and really not much space in front of the spinal column, you, you question have they had atrophy of the, the muscles themselves, which is causing the dysphagia. Okay, last level of protection is the meninges. So the meninges pad the brain, that's the acronym to remember, um, you have the pia mater, the arachnoid mater, and the dura mater. And this is kind of the another level below the skull of how your, your brain is protected. So pia mater um, is really the tissue paper-like covering of the central nervous system. So it, it translates to tender mother in Latin, and the fibers anchor the arachnoid to the pia, so there's really no movement of the brain within that, um, that level. And the pia mater conforms to the sulci and gyri of the cortex um, to really give it that kind of close level of protection and is a really effective effective barrier for infections. So that's when you hear about um, how the brain is protected. When you talk about the blood-brain barrier, um, you have that pia mater really closely adhering to the brain surface to keep out any potential infections. The level above that, of course, is the arachnoid mater, um, giving a spider's web type appearance and looking kind of like a cobweb. Um, this is the highly vascularized space, and it also is where all the cerebrospinal fluid circulates through. The arachnoid villi, which are within there, help drain out the CSF um, back into the venous system. So again, keep the brain clean, uh, protected, and free of infection, like we talked about. There's plenty of vascular supply within these layers that reach the cortex, and of course, people have heard about subarachnoid hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging and bleeding, 
So in the case of trauma, that's why the subarachnoid space oftentimes fills with blood because it has so many vessels. And in a, a bad situation, of course, they'd have to drain it out, do a craniotomy um, or cranioplasty to try to get it out of there. Okay, and lastly is the dura mater, which means tough mother. So it kind of is the opposite of the pia mater, tender mother. This one's a lot more rough um, and tough. So it's more like a parchment consistency that is basically between um, the skull and, and the brain. So that adheres really closely to wow, basically the, the sulci within the brain, the major sulci, the longitudinal fissure, and the central sulcus. In the event of a traumatic brain injury, if you have a lot of shearing, that's why there's damage to the cortex is because it's jagged. So that's more of a jagged edge to that dura mater, which sometimes shears the outer axons of the cortex, and we see more of the cognitive impairments that we see. All right. I'm talking fast. This is great, <laughs> Andrea. This is I love your little anecdotes because these are like the kind of things that help me actually remember what you're talking about. You know, like how horribly boring can sometimes just looking at a picture of neuroanatomy be, but we have to know it and we have to know how it functions. And so thank you. These are yeah. these are so helpful. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's it's the type of subject you just review, review, and mm-hmm. re-review um, to really learn it. So this is a good breaking point. So I have a little experiment actually. Um, for all of you out there listening, and for you, Teresa, sitting there sipping on your beverage. My tea. Um, <laughs> your tea, perfect. So if you are listening in your car right now, please wait till you get home for this experiment. What you're going to do, you're going to sit up straight and nice and straight in your chair and lift your right foot into the air and start making continuous clockwise circles with your foot raised up in the air. So you're making clockwise circles continually. Keep doing it, keep doing that. And now take your right hand and draw the number six in the air. <laughs> and it went backwards. <laughs> First so, of all, my abs gave out, but then my foot started going <laughs> counterclockwise, yes. <laughs> yes, it's fascinating. Nice, a, nice, um, experiment, a, a nice experiment, I love to do that if I'm ever lecturing medical students or any other nursing students, it kind of wakes them up mid-lecture. So, yeah. <laughs> fun neuro test. Okay, so we are moving along to our next section, which is the vascular system. So we've already talked about embryology. We talked about the major uh, distributions of the central and peripheral nervous system. And we reviewed protection of the brain in the form of the meninges, the ventricles, and the skull. Um, So now we'll talk about the blood supply. So we broadly use the terms anterior circulation, which is the front, and posterior circulation, which is the back, obviously. And this helps us refer to the carotid distribution and the vertebrovascular distribution, respectively. So as a review, um, the carotids branch off of the aorta and the vertebrals branch off of the subclavian arteries. Remarkably, um, the setup works very well with the blood pumping out of the heart um, with continuous blood pressure. And if it's the right viscosity of blood, the flow is going to reach all the parts of the brain um, to the right perfusion. And Again, kind of the remarkable way we're set up as humans, there's many different convolutions within there and even 90 degree turns that happen in the arterial system as the blood enters the brain, um, which helps to slow the flow and not overwhelm any one part of the brain. So when you look at pictures of gross anatomy of of how the arteries are set up, they travel in so many different angular directions and it's really a a method of slowing the, the flow because you have that continuous blood pressure perfusing. Pretty amazing. So again, the carotid system, um, you have, you obviously you have your left and right internal carotids coming up and you have the external carotids as well. 
The big thing to remember here briefly is that the carotid system is what, what feeds your anterior and middle cerebral arteries. So when you have your patients who have had that big left or right MCA stroke that's caused tons of cognitive and communication impairments, you have the carotid system most likely to, to blame. So um, a lot of time pe times people will develop plaques in there, uh, narrowing, clots that are coming off of the aorta um, and traveling up the carotid and landing in a smaller artery within the hemisphere. Um, so we see lots of problems there. Um, another kind of thing to remember about the carotid system and good to maybe whip out a, a gross anatomy textbook is that the cranial nerves travel right along the carotids um, on their way down to feed the muscles that we care about. So, for example, I had, I had a patient one time who had a very high-level carotid endarterectomy. It was up very high um, along the carotid. And he woke up from surgery, walking fine, arms are moving fine, starts feeding himself, and the nurse notes he's choking, right? So what's going on with this guy? Upon inspection, he had a, a tongue deviation and was hoarse. And lo and behold, they had nicked the hypoglossal and the vagus nerve um, because of how high up the surgery was. So the reason his body was okay, we'll get into a little bit later, um, but his cranial nerves weren't. It's just a, a sheer fact of where they're coursing through the system. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. I think this was the perfect example of why we have to do our cranial nerve exams. Yes. Yes. And when the body's okay, yes. <laughs> um, yes. we'll, we'll kind of touch upon that, but that's So you kind of think about how much room is in the skull. It's not like our skull has gotten any bigger. So it just continues to fold up into itself. So you've got your left and right hemispheres clearly defined and um, divided by the longitudinal fissure. And they are bound together in the middle by the corpus callosum. They're separated kind of anterior and posteriorly by the central sulcus, which we'll touch upon a couple of times today. Um, just remember the pre-central gyrus. So right in front of the central sulcus is the motor strip and the post-central is the sensory strip. So the frontal lobe, one of our favorites as speech pathologists, um, it does contain that motor strip. So that's uh, the most important part when we're talking about motor pathways because that's where the upper motor neuron begins. And damage will cause impairment to the contralateral side. So that's where we see a stroke patient who has damage to the frontal lobe and the precentral gyrus, um, having, say, a, a arm paresis, a leg paresis, facial or lingual paresis. Um, it can cause cognitive impairments if there's damage to the frontal lobe, non-fluent aphasias, so more of the transcortical motors or Broca's aphasias. Um, you'll also see the apraxia of speech acquired from damage to the frontal lobe. An unusual type of dysarthria is spastic, uh, as far as acquired motor speech disorders, spastic is pretty rare because both hemispheres have to be affected um, to have that type of spasticity. Dysphagia can result to damage to the frontal lobe. Um, you may have a patient who has an oral dysphagia because there's weakness of either the tongue or the lower face. Um, and sometimes we see that, of course, the patients with cognitive impairments uh, chugging along a little too fast and choking um, or eating impulsively. That's the type of dysphagia we might see from frontal damage. Lastly, motor speech-wise, you can have a unilateral upper motor neuron dysarthria, which again is due to potential lower facial paresis on the contralateral side of damage and lingual paresis on the contralateral side. So those are the people who have that imprecise 
articulation, maybe a little drooling, maybe a little trouble with plosive sounds and, and the like. Okay, temporal lobe. Um, so on the side of our heads, right, we have the primary auditory cortex here, and damage can result in fluent aphasia, like the transcortical sensory or Wernicke's type, memory issues, recognition issues, or processing issues. Parietal lobe. So now we're getting back into what we mentioned before, the sensory strip or post-central gyrus is here, and that's where sensory information is processed. Damage to the parietal lobe can also um, cause a, a host of recognition-type impairments, which are the fun ones in practice. Um, we have things like visual neglect to the opposite side, um, conduction aphasia. I had a lady just yesterday with conduction aphasia, um, so difficulty with repetition, lots of neologisms, but she had good recognition of her errors. Other types of things you might see with parietal lobe damage are issues with right and left discrimination, anisognosia or denial of deficit, prosopognosia or poor facial recognition, astereognosia when you're unable to recognize objects, and potentially issues with, with uh, reading, writing, and math. And lastly, the occipital lobe, uh, the primary visual cortex, which of course damage could uh, result in cortical blindness, attentional issues, reading, and symbolic recognition issues. All right, so those are the major um, lobes of the brain when we talked about the hemispheres. And we're going to move backwards and to the rhombencephalon. So cerebellum is in the kind of posterior inferior location. And again, the neurons that make up the cerebellum are a little bit different in their um, shape. They're called Purkinje neurons, which gives the cerebellar cortex a little bit of a different look than the rest of the cerebrum. And damage to the cerebellum, you're on the lookout for ataxia. Um, things like dysmetria, intention tremor, nystagmus, you might see kind of the shaking of the eyes. You might have dysphagia, again, people choking because they're poorly coordinated with the timing of their swallow. And of course, ataxic dysarthria, you might see. All right, I'm going to skip down a little bit. The limbic system, so the limbic system is on the inside, and uh, the main parts that you want to remember for neuroanatomy purposes are the amygdala and the hippocampus. So um, the hippocampus and amygdala are really involved in the transfer and encoding of short to long-term memories, emotional expressions, um, and regulation of things. So when you have damage there, you might have people who are demonstrating things like fearlessness, um, maybe being inappropriate sexually, having indiscriminate eating, um, and of course, memory impairments. Okay, next we have the basal ganglia. So think basal ganglia, deep-seated in the brain again and really heavily involved with motor planning and initiation of the motor plan. So as the different pathways, the sensory and motor pathways are connecting from the hemispheres down and the body up, all the input from the basal ganglia plays into that. So we have appropriate um, amount of movement when we're doing things. If you have damage here, it's typically um, either damage to the neurons themselves or the um, amount of neurotransmitters. So you can think about the kind of two extremes. You have an either hypokinetic situation, like in Parkinson's, where there's reduced function, or uh, reduced transmission, or hyperkinetic, um, which is more of a Huntington's picture where there's excess movement um, and kind of uh, extra chorea, apoptosis, and things like that. All right, how are we doing on time here, Teresa? <laughs> We're doing wonderful. This is awesome. Excellent, excellent. So on to one of our favorite subjects. I think we share this one in common. Um, it's the brainstem. So yes. 
I think uh, it's the center for life, right? It's the center of everything we love and care about. Um, and I often joke that, of course, the swallowing center is called the nucleus ambiguous. So why do we get the ambiguous section? Right. Um, but fortunately, <laughs> that's changing over time. It used to be really ambiguous, and nobody knew how these pathways worked. Um, but we're really blessed in this day and age to know a lot more about normal and abnormal functioning within that nucleus. So brainstem, as far as the gross anatomy part of this lecture, you do want to be most concerned about um, dysphagia and flaccid dysarthria. So um, damage to these cranial nerves themselves can result in um, more significant impairments for your patients. So brief review, um, the brainstem is comprised of the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla oblongata, and the cranial nerve nuclei for three and four are in the midbrain. So we're just going to skip over those because we care about eye movement, but not that much. Pons, we're very concerned about. We have cranial nerves um, five through eight here. So we've got trigeminal, we've got facial in there, and auditory, of course. And then the medulla oblongata um, has nine, 10, and 12, which we're also very concerned about. Um, and 11, we care a little bit about 11, right? So glossopharyngeal, vagus, hypoglossal, and spinal accessory. So damage to these structures can cause issues with sight, smell, hearing, taste, disequilibrium. Um, you might have patients who are nauseous, comatose, dizzy, um, dysphagic, and again, dysarthric. So those are kind of the host of things that can happen. And the worst of situations, of course, would be issues with respiration um, and cardiac function. So that's why it is the center of life. As we mentioned, there's 12 pairs that exit from the left and right sides of the brainstem and innervate all the muscles within the oropharynx, face, larynx, neck, and other visceral organs. And they can, the nerves themselves have either sensory, motor, or both functions. So think about your acronyms, again, from grad school on Old Olympus's Towering Top. A Finn and German viewed some hops, um, kind of tells you about that orientation. Um, to remember sensory motor, some say marry money, but my brother says big brains matter more is a nice way to remember if the nerves are sensory motor or both. And the nerves we'll talk about today, again, we're going to focus on trigeminal and facial from the pons, glossopharyngeal vagus and hypoglossal from the medulla. So those are our, our focused nerves for the next 15 minutes or so. <laughs> okay. Um, this is probably a good time to review, and we touched upon it earlier, contralateral, ipsilateral, and bilateral innervation of um, nerve function. So at a very basic level, again, the corticospinal pathway, which is the upper motor neuron beginning on the cortex. So think about the uh, motor strip, the precentral gyrus, and you may um, have heard the term homunculus. If you take out a picture of the homunculus, it shows you exactly on the cortex where those upper motor neurons are going to start. Um, so kind of towards the lateral side, we have more of our nerves. Face, the lips, the jaw, the jaw, the tongue are kind of to the side of the brain of that motor strip. And up towards the top, you're going to have more of your, your legs, your arms, your wrists, your hands, uh, more at the top of that strip. So the corticospinal pathway you have your upper motor neuron beginning on whatever level of the strip um, it corresponds to, and then it descends to synapse with the contralateral spinal nerve. So that's the basic, basic setup. You have the nerve starting on the left hemisphere up towards the top for your arm. It travels down, crosses over, and at the point called pyramidal decussation, then descends. The axon just keeps going down, 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 
to the appropriate spinal nerve on the right side, and then that right arm moves. So that's the very basics of the corticospinal. Now, in our world, in speech pathology world, we have a little more fun um, because the cranial nerves are much more complex um, in their function, and you have to have appropriate function of certain nerves for life-sustaining events, such as breathing, swallowing, cardiac, digestive functioning. So the nerves that innervate those kind of necessary functions of life, not that having no arm function on one side is, is good, it's bad, um, but much worse if you can't swallow or breathe. So many of our cranial nerves receive innervation from both hemispheres, and um, that's called bilateral innervation. It just means that if you have um, your, your, the nuclei, for example, of the trigeminal nerve, you have one on the left pons and one on the right pons. Those are the two major nuclei. The right hemisphere gives input to both the left and the right pontine nuclei for trigeminal, and so does the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere will send signals to both the left and the right pontine cranial nerve nuclei. So that means if you have a patient who has a massive left MCA stroke, they're not going to have a jaw deviation because they're getting input to the trigeminal from the other hemisphere. So that's our safety net. That's why when you see patients with aphasia who have a cortical issue, you don't see patients with a, a severe pharyngeal dysphagia, for example, because our vagus and our glossopharyngeal are protected just the same. And you would rarely see someone with a, a jaw deviation. So speaking of, uh, we'll move into the trigeminal nerve. Cranial nerve 5, and the origin is in the pons. Um, this will give sensory and motor input, and it takes sensory information from the face and head and gives motor input for, of course, mastication. So the sensory order, the, we talked about a three-neuron order system for sensory pathways. The first-order neuron comes from the receptors, the sensory receptors in your face, which are in three different branches. The second-order neuron is going to take that information from the pons to the contralateral thalamus. So it's going to come to the opposite side of the brain, bringing the input up. And then that third neuron is in the thalamus that's going to then send it to the ipsilateral postcentral gyrus for interpretation. So the sensory um, input is ultimately received by the opposite hemisphere. Motor-wise, it's a two-neuron system. So you've got your upper motor neuron in the precentral gyrus and it sends it to the nuclei in the pons. So this is where that fun begins. It sends it not just to the contralateral side, but also to the ipsilateral side. So both nuclei for trigeminal get input from both hemispheres. And there it exits the foramen ovale and synapses with the muscles on the ipsilateral side, the same side for chewing. So things like the temporalis, the masseter, lateral medial pterygoids, um, also the anterior belly of the digastric, mylohyoid, um, kind of interestingly, the tensor tympani and tensor veli palatini um, are within there. So just to review, if you have a patient who is having difficulty chewing, for example, or has a jaw deviation, you know for a fact that that's not a cortical problem. It's not an upper motor neuron problem. It's going to be a lower motor neuron or cranial nerve problem. And it could be damage to the pons within, within uh, below where that nuclei is for the trigeminal nerve, or, like we talked about, the foramen ovale, where it's exiting, if maybe the patient had an injury to the skull um, that caused inflammation there, you might have a patient who ends up with jaw issues. All right, facial nerve. Um, this one's fun. So this is a sensory and a motor nerve also. 
and it receives innervation to the lower face only from one hemisphere, but it receives innervation to the upper face from both hemispheres. <laughs> so this one's kind of funky. Um, obviously, the facial nerve is, is involved with facial expression and sensory-wise also for chemoreception and taste on the front of your tongue. So briefly, sensory neuron order, you've got your taste buds on the front part of your tongue that are going to send that information to the second order neuron, which is in the pond, up to the contralateral thalamus, same as the trigeminal, and from there to the same sided postcentral gyrus for interpretation. So that's how you know that there's um, something on your tongue, it's how you taste something on your tongue, you have that feeling. Motor-wise, um, the first order neuron is going to start in that motor strip, come down through the internal capsule, and for the upper face, it's going to actually hit the same side and the opposite side to innervate both of those nerves. But for your lower face, it's only going to be contralateral. So this one's interesting. The way to differentiate here is that you have a patient who only has a lower facial paresis. So it's just their smile that's impaired. Um, or they have a facial droop just on the lips. You know for a fact that's going to be an upper motor neuron problem because that's only innervated by the opposite hemisphere. So your patient who has a left ACA stroke, for example, might end up with a lower right facial paresis. A patient with a right-sided uh, hemispheric stroke is gonna have a left lower paresis. When you have a patient who also cannot raise up their eyebrows and can't close their eye and has upper and lower facial paresis, you know it's the cranial nerve, same side. So that's um, known as Bell's palsy. It's oftentimes because of inflammation at that stylomastoid foramen. Um, again, that kind of exits the side of the skull. So a lot of times that's uh, just an infection like a herpes infection at that level that inflames the nerve and causes uh, no movement of the, the muscles on that one side of the face. So that's how you know that the damage is on the lower end, not the upper end, is for facial. Okay, glossopharyngeal. Um, again, this is a sensory and motor nerve. It gets um, information for both and is bilaterally innervated. So definitely a safety mechanism here um, for us to be able to swallow, um, among other things. And the terminations um, for the motor pathway are the pharynx, larynx, parotid gland, and tongue. The sensory receptors here, we have receptors in the upper pharynx and the back of the tongue, so the posterior third of the tongue, um, which bring the information up to the medulla, um, which is cranial nerve nine in the brainstem sending that information to the thalamus, and then from the thalamus up to the postcentral gyrus. Sensory-wise, um, it's important to remember that glossopharyngeal is responsible for the afferent part of the gag reflex. So the sensory part of the gag reflex is, is mediated by the glossopharyngeal, whereas the motor part, the fact that someone actually gags, is the vagus nerve. So it's kind of an important differentiation. I know some people do not test the gag, um, but I think it's an important thing to test if you are suspecting any sort of cranial nerve dysfunction. Motor-wise, um, for glossopharyngeal, you have your upper motor neuron, again, starting at the motor strip, going through the internal capsule, um, crossing over in the medulla, but also staying some fibers on the same side. Again, it's bilaterally innervated. And then it's gonna exit the jugular foramen, uh, which is in the skull base, to innervate um, the stylopharyngeus muscle and other smooth muscle glands of the larynx and viscera of your thorax and your abdomen. Okay, then we've got vagus, and we're just on time um, for two more nerves. So the vagus, uh, what happens in vagus stays in vagus or not, and it is known as the wandering nerve. Um, this one is also sensory and motor. 
and bilaterally innervated. So again, um, it's, it would be so rare, you, you really wouldn't see it if someone had a, a cortical stroke. You're not going to see pharyngeal and laryngeal impact. Um, if you see someone that's hoarse or has a, a hemiplegia of the pharynx, pharyngoplegia on one side, you're going to definitely suspect vagus nerve involvement, a brainstem issue. So basically sensory-wise, you have sensory receptors in the tissues of your pharynx and larynx, uh, the trachea, other visceral um, organs, and they're going to come up to the medulla, again to the thalamus, and then to the postcentral gyrus for interpretation. Motor-wise, the first-order neuron is again in the precentral gyrus, the frontal lobe, um, precentral gyrus, and it sends that information to the opposite medulla and the same side of the medulla. So you have again bilateral innervation to the actual cranial nerve, exiting the jugular foramen, and that's where it divides into your uh, pharyngeal branch, the superior and recurrent laryngeal nerves. And we know that the, the vagus is critical for pharyngeal constriction, uh, the levator palatini, elevation of the velum. So um, again, we talked about the gag response. So the sensory part of the gag is your glossopharyngeal, but the motor part of it for someone to actually gag is going to be the vagus, uh, the palatopharyngeal just and palatoglossus, and all the vocal cord um, intrinsic and extrinsic muscles, of course. Okay, and just a, a kind of wrapping back to the very beginning about the recurrent laryngeal nerve um, and how it loops. So remember, it loops on the left side because of that part of embryologic development um, around the aorta. So be on the lookout if your patient has any aortic surgery. Um, we actually have a patient today in the hospital undergoing an aortic root replacement, um, and she is probably going to end up having some, some impact, at least temporarily, on that recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, so you definitely want to get involved with swallowing and voice for those guys. Um, and on the right side, it loops under the right subclavian. And lastly, hypoglossal, this is the easiest nerve um, for us because it mimics the corticospinal pathway. So the hypoglossal is contralaterally innervated. So it doesn't have that same level of protection um, as the other nerves we've discussed. So in a very basic sense, this first order neuron, strictly a motor nerve, starts in the precentral gyrus, the upper motor neuron, the information goes to the contralateral medulla, so the nuclei of hypoglossal on the opposite side, exits the hypoglossal foramen, and innervates the intrinsic and extrinsic muscles of the tongue. So a patient, this is where you can have kind of, you have to do a little more sleuthing as a speech pathologist, because if a patient's tongue is deviating, it could either be damage to the opposite hemisphere, or it could be a lower motor neuron impairment of the hypoglossal nerve on the same side. So if the tongue is deviating to the right, it's possible that the patient have a left hemisphere stroke. But if it's deviating to the right, they may also have a right hypoglossal medullary problem or some, some issue with the hypoglossal canal or like the patient I mentioned earlier who had the carotid endarterectomy that nicked the hypoglossal. So it was a same-sided same -sided weakness. One difference with cranial nerve dysfunction versus cortical dysfunction is generally um, cranial nerve atrophy is much more pronounced. Um, so there's going to be significant atrophy of the tongue on the same side um, compared to a cortical stroke because there are still some, some connections from the same hemisphere, uh, the upper motor neurons, that you will have not as, not as pronounced weakness of that tongue. Um, that's just one way to differentiate. And... That's all I've got, Teresa, and it's exactly 11.30. That's all, Andrea? That's it. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm kidding. That was wonderful. Thank you so, so much. That was awesome timing. It really was. I did not plan that. Yeah, no, that was wonderful. That was, I, I think, I think that was perfect. I think just the perfect amount of information for people to get over a podcast is wonderful. So excellent. So one, one thing I can offer to your listeners, this is, I know some people are auditory learners, some are yeah. visual, some are kinesthetic, right? I've made these coloring pages that show the pathways in colorful you. detail. So if they would like blank ones to practice on, um, I think it's a good way, especially for your listeners who are just starting out in the field or maybe going towards a board certification for dysphagia. Yep. It's a really nice way to kind of review the muscular, um, where, where the synapses actually happen, which muscles are innervated by which nerves and kind of how the pathways actually work. So. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm such an auditory learner, like at first, and then sometimes I just need to read things over to get it to stick, but I love to just hear things over and over auditorily. So thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Thanks for having me back and um, for that kind of brief, but hopefully comprehensive review of some neuroanatomy. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a great rest of the day. You too. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.